hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The Court of Appeals of the State of Indiana is now in session. The Honorable Melissa S. May of Vanderburg County presiding, with the Honorable Leanna K. Wiseman of Dearborn County, and the Honorable Peter R. Foley of Borden County. Good morning. It is good to be back here in Terre Haute. I always like coming um, back here. I practiced law in Evansville for a number of years, and so I was up here quite a bit. We are here today in the case of Rachel Baker versus State of Indiana. For the appellant, I have Mark Lehman, and I see you have reserved six minutes for rebuttal. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. All right. And George Sherman for the state. All right, um, I believe we're ready to get started. Council, you may proceed when ready. Good morning, judges. Your honors, Rachel Baker raises two issues on appeal. First, when an officer stops a driver for a seatbelt violation, the officer cannot inspect the seatbelt wearing passengers by asking for their identifications, names, and birthdays. Second, when a person is placed under arrest and told to incriminate themselves now or to face more serious offenses later, they are not a, quote, free agent, close quote, presented with a voluntary choice. On the early morning hours of February 3rd, 2022, Indiana State Police Trooper Babb stopped Luther Baker's truck because, and only because, Baker was not wearing a seatbelt. When speaking with the officer, Luther told the officer he had not registered the vehicle because he had recently purchased it two weeks prior. Trooper Babs asked the driver and his two female passengers for their names, identifications, and birth dates. Okay, so it's at that point, while the officer first approaches the car, that he asks all of them for their personal information. Judge, the record is unclear exactly when the precise timing was of when the women were asked for their identification names and birthdays relevant or uh, as it relates to the timing of the conversation with Mr. Uh, with uh, Luther. Um, it's clearly that the conversation regarding the registration of Luther's vehicle occurs post stop. And so in that situation, Your Honor, we would ask the court to not follow the lead of the cases that the state's asking for here, which are cases where they're saying the stop is based upon a vehicle registration issue. Interestingly here, there isn't a registration issue at all. In the stops that the state is dealing with, in those scenarios, Your Honor, there's a car traveling, the guy runs the plates, looks at the car, and sees there's a mismatch. And then he's conducting further investigation to see if the driver is complying with Indiana law. So which Mr. Allows Lehman, can I bring yes. you back to something that you said in your opening? Yes. It appears to me that you're asking the court to make a blanket rule where an officer can never ask for a passenger's identification during a seatbelt enforcement. Is, is that what you're asking for or is this still a, just a factual inquiry? I think that, um, 
Judge, if I understood your question, it was ask them their names. Is that so, how you So could the there be circumstances where the, the officer could ask the names, but this just isn't one of those? Yes, there could be circumstances. So you're not asking for a blanket prohibition? Um, no. So Morris, uh, I think it is the case that suggests that during the course of the encounter, and, and there was another case as well, during the course of the encounter that you can uncover additional information that allows the officer to conduct further investigations but that's what it's that additional information so give allows me an officer. example of a time when an officer could ask a passenger's name during a seatbelt stop. Well, I think this court there was the furtive gesture case uh, which was the, the passenger uh, yeah, the passenger yeah I think it's either yeah. Morris or Howard your honor and I forget off the top of my head which of those it is but it's it's that officers go up to the car for the seatbelt violation and the guy's places what's that trig it was true you know he's, he's going like this he's and he ends up he's basically there was a crack, crack pipe on the seat, yeah. the seat yeah and so the, the furtive gesture authorizes the officer to pull the guy out for safety reasons which is the the also consistent case from the United States Supreme Court but here the officer was really explicit like these women were doing nothing to arouse his suspicion the only reason he says and the only reason he provides in the record th that for why he does what he does here is a generalized suspicion when I pull over cars with people in them I want to know who I'm dealing with so is this somewhat like the Harris case do you remember that one where the officer started questioning about Sudafed purchasers because he remembered the person's name from the registry and we found that was inappropriate and that reversed on that case. Yes, you know, I think that's much more similar to what's going on here is that this is just this is just like a generalized but even in Harris, your honor, it was like a particularized suspicion. It was I know some information about a, another a person in the vehicle that's going to allow me to conduct a further investigation inspection search related to the information the particularized information that i have here here this is why this case is so concerning is the author the trooper is confident here he says no i just i do this all the time whenever i want because i want to well, let me ask you right so if the officer's testimony is is that when i approach the vehicle for an infraction or a stop I'm going to ask all of the occupants or at least the front seat passengers if we want to limit it that way for identification or who they are yes all right so that was his testimony right I blanket I do this that's how I conduct these a stop does it make a difference whether or not then the seat belt the restrictions in the seat belt statute because you agree uh, the the seat belt statute is a unique statute in that it is a infraction statute but then it limits specifically and explicitly um, this additional uh, inquiry or conduct from the officer with respect to passengers or other uh, investigating other things unless there is this intervening uh, facts that lead to a different investigation is that kind of yes, correct I, wholeheartedly yes. right. I mean, seat belt, seat belt stop. I like to say it's not even it's not a it's not a traffic stop it's his unique own thing. It's his own thing. All right, so if that's the case, and it's its unique own thing, um, in this case, is there any other facts that would lead to a change in the scenario to an investigation of, say, the registration issue? If the officer, so 
that answer your question? No, there isn't. Uh, there isn't anything else that would change this from a seatbelt stop to a traffic stop because there wasn't a registration issue. This wasn't a mismatch. This is a guy saying, I bought this two weeks ago. I'm in compliance with the law. We don't, there are ways that he could have even substantiated that further with providing a proof of bill of sale. Wait a second. Yeah. Wasn't, wasn't the identification, the serial number of the car linked back to a different color car? Yes, at some point during this investigation, the officer apparently did run the, ran the VIN on it. I think that's an, ind an independent issue as to whether an officer can run the VIN and stop a car, detain a car for a seatbelt violation, run the VIN on the car to, to do what the uh, guy's already said. Look, this, I just bought this vehicle. Here's what proof I have. We don't even know if that happened or not. But and whether he can continue to detain the vehicle to run the VIN, that's a different question of why is that not developed in this record because the officer didn't use that as the reason for his conduct and so the defense counsel it, it, and neither party fully develops the record in that regard this because is it's, because it's important isn't it, as far as the timing here based on what we do how we determine it um, because if, if he if he asked if he didn't come back and ask the women for their identification until after he started investigating into the registration type thing. Uh, that raises the entire issue. Doesn't that take it out of a seatbelt stop and into more of an investigatory stop, which would allow him to go ahead and ask those questions? Timing matters. We don't know the answer as to when the timing occurred of various events here because the officer didn't provide this as a basis for his conduct, so the record wasn't developed in that regard. Whose burden it's, was that to develop? Yours the, state, the state has the burden of proof for a warrant, uh, proving uh, exception to the warrant requirement. Uh, we would think that that would certainly apply to providing a, an exception to the And the only justification here that the state provided was officer safety. That's the only justification the officer provided. And during argument, the state produced that, or provided this argument that the Seatbelt Enforcement Act might also. But those are the issues. The Seatbelt Enforcement Act and the officer safety, the generalized. So generally, when we look to officer safety, we look to some reasonably objective and subjective facts and yes. situation. It was 3.17 in the morning on a Wednesday. Yes. Does that, how does that impact your argument? Yes. So if you, the officer can cite to a particularized uh, reason for his safety being concerned here. That's not what he cited. He said he does this everywhere. And then later, at the, after the suppression hearings all bore out on this, later the, the prosecutor asked him, well, but also if you thought of it, there were some additional facts here that might cause you some more safety concern, and those being the 3 a.m. and extra passengers in the vehicle. Two, two points here, Judge. That isn't what the officer was saying and doing here. He said, I do this all the time, every time. That's it. So we think that that's not and a basis I didn't for see anything in the record. This was a high crime area. Correct. That there had been a recent robbery, that there were, you know, facts or situations of regarding this time or date that would have given the officer concern. Did I miss that? Yeah, I did not either, Your Honor. And the high crime, so I analogize to, I think, that closest case, which is the high crime area, guys pulling booze out of his car, setting it on the rooftop, but he's not acting drunk. That, it's a, that uh, merely being in a place late at night, uh, in a, even in a high crime area, which this wasn't, it isn't enough. So certainly this can't be enough. Three people driving at three in the morning, 
we all do it right? for one reason we're driving on vacation we got a plane to catch some people work a third shift some people get off early from the second shift there's a lot of reasons that good lawful reasons that people drive late at night and that's not an, i don't believe our excuse me miss baker's argument here judge is that first the officer didn't articulate a reasonable or articulable s suspicion for why he had he felt his safeties were at risk but the reasons that we know were that there isn't a dispute of existing in this record also don't establish that so the 3 a.m stop and the three people in a car late at night pulling into a residential uh, housing apartment complex it doesn't satisfy the standard for an officer to conduct what would essentially be a Terry stop or to pull, be able to pull people out of the vehicle to conduct an inspection of the passengers and to do the things that the officer says he's allowed to do, which is to detain the vehicle to, to get all their identifications, all their birth dates, to go back to his car, to look up the VIN number on Can the car. Can we talk a little bit yeah. about the trafficking charge? So the, the, the uh, trial court judge mentioned uh, that a way to have avoided this was possibly for your client to have said, well, I don't think I have anything on me, but search me anyway. Yeah. Is, what, what's your response to that? Judge, I had two, two thoughts on this. One, first, a non-Mirandized opportunity to incriminate yourself is not an opportunity to voluntarily terminate possession. So there, she wasn't read her Miranda rights. I think the judge's argument carries more weight if you say, listen, you've got an opportunity to talk to counsel here. And if you provide them their portal rights or their Miranda rights and give them an opportunity to talk to a lawyer, there they're making a voluntary choice. But here, what they're saying is, is that if we tell you incriminate yourself now or face another charge later, that that's a free actor making a voluntary choice. But let me ask yes. you this. Doesn't the intent element go to the possession? So if somebody's going to possess methamphetamine, yes. an illegal substance, is it not reasonable for them to have an inkling that they may at some point be arrested for that very possession and then the arrest flows downstream going to jail well i would think that we would never have a level six felony uh possession under that scenario judge if there's always if you're always liable for you might be hauled to jail for the mere possession so i guess i would disagree your honor that i don't think there's always well i guess there's always an inkling that hey i'm doing something illegal i could get arrested for something illegal and so therefore i'm taking a risk but the element the mens rea there i think is knowing is the presumption it's got to be a knowing possession inside a penal facility um and so here do you know that it's reasonably likely that you're going to have possession inside a penal facility probably not until you have an encounter with a police officer. But interestingly, in Indiana, if you start to have a, an encounter with a police officer and you've got drugs on you and you try and dispose of those drugs, Indiana, this court has, I think, three times affirmed that, that that's the attempt to dispose of that evidence is obstruction. So here, once the officer comes up to the car and starts conducting inquiries, we're probably she's looking at obstruction if she tries to, to get rid of it. Who would be in possession voluntarily in a penal facility if we followed your uh, mens rea element to in other words we'd only the inmates wouldn't right so if i'm an inmate in a penal facility and i'm illegally possessing methamphetamine you couldn't have the enhancement because i got locked up to be there 
Um, so it's only meant for so the statute's only meant for visitors. Uh, can I move to have two minutes added to this time and subtract it from the rebuttal? Here? You may. Thank you, uh, Judge Foley. Um, can you ask your question again? Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the point is, uh, if you're saying that she doesn't have the mens rea element to be inside the penal facility, which is the enhancement under the statute. Yes. Well, well, then who would? I mean, the only person I can conceive of is a visitor coming into a penal facility. Otherwise, the statute wouldn't be, you wouldn't be able to charge an inmate, right? Um, no, you could charge an inmate because they would deal it with it. I mean, the, the whole reason we have a trafficking offense is because somebody is well, coming into a facility to well, hand to another person. This isn't trafficking. This is possession with the enhancement. No, but the reason that people are trafficking is because the guy inside wants to possess. And so, I, if I'm in, an inmate, Your Honor, and uh, Jane Doe comes in and hands me methamphetamine, I've committed a level five regardless of the quantity of it because I've, I've so we're, we're disincentivizing people who are in facilities to receive it so it makes it less likely to be trafficked into it so uh, the situation is visitors or inmates who are soliciting to bring hey I could use a fix my man uh, and, and so those are the situations that I see as covered so, so what you're saying is a statute is, is looking at the situations where this sort of thing is getting into facility uh, not through normal channels, maybe through attorney mail, maybe through other things that yes. are, sur are not properly searched. I know there used to be, you know, uh, instances where people would write things in crayon and you would be able to put methamphetamine in the crayon. So yes. the inmates receiving that. So it's, like a it's, 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 it's exactly. So it's re referring to that, not necessarily somebody bringing into the facility. Yes, is what you're saying. It's trying to heighten the demand. It's trying to increase the penalty on the demand side, while trafficking is trying to increase the penalty on the supply side. Exactly. And in this so way, those those two statutes, I think, mirror each other effectively. I, I've got one more thought. I before. Well, I'll stop. And I actually still have a question for you. Okay, though, while you're, you're still right. up here. Well, that makes it easy. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll give any additional time to you that we need. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right, you may. So, so that situation, um, when I'm talking about when you're receiving something that is, looks to a, somebody that's at the jail like it's a crayon picture, but it really has yes. a, a substance to it, the person, obviously, the inmate has to know that it has some sort of illegal substance to make use of that. Correct, Your Honor, and I, that goes right back to the core of the voluntary statute. It, it, subpart B of the voluntary statute, if possession of property constitutes any part of the prohibited conduct, it is the defense that the person who possessed the property was not aware of his possession for a time sufficient for him to have terminated his possession. Our argument here is she didn't have time to terminate her possession. She said, I chose to commit level six felony. Give me a choice to terminate my possession before I go into the penal facility. But that wasn't a choice she was given. It and was, this was a low-level charge because, because uh, according to the trafficking statute, it es escalates uh, regarding the amount. But there wasn't even enough in the baggie that they could measure it, correct? Yes. The, the, the quote from the... Um, uh, from the, the state's own expert was basically, I knew from my experience that that thing wouldn't even weigh on our scales. It was so small. Your Honor, I, th I will reserve the remaining time for a rebuttal. Thank, thank you, you all. All right, thank you. Thank you. Mr. Sherman? May it please the court. The trial court properly admitted the methamphetamine and the evidence was sufficient to sustain her conviction. 
there's no violation of the Seatbelt Act because the circumstances known to the officer provided reasonable suspicion of more than merely a seatbelt violation. As soon as the officer spoke to the driver, he was told that the vehicle was not properly registered. So that by itself provided reasonable suspicion. For the passengers? For the driver and the vehicle itself because... So what about a lack of proper registration would uh, imply illegal behavior on a passenger? We're not saying that would imply any illegal behavior on the passenger, but and the passengers were seat belted in the car. If, if I rode to this oral argument with Judge Foley, do I need to make sure that his car is properly registered or else I'm going to get in trouble? No, but if you're in a car with someone that's pulled over, um, then the police can conduct additional inquiries with regards to the passengers if they have reasonable suspicion of a traffic violation. For what purpose? Um, the main justification I've seen is for officer safety. Um, courts have noticed that um, the danger to the officer while they're conducting the investigation. So your implication is if I get in a car with Judge Foley and has not, doesn't have his car properly registered, I'm a danger to the officer by being a passenger in a car that doesn't have proper registration? The rationale is that the officer is permitted to check who the passengers are to make sure they aren't a danger to him while he's conducting the investigation. So, so how do you square that with Richardson? The Supreme Court case? The Supreme Court case where it was too much to ask about the bulge in, in a pocket. Wouldn't that seem to be more indicative of a weapon or a, an actual danger than somebody sitting in the car that's not properly licensed? Well, the difference between this case and Richardson is that there, there was no reasonable suspicion of any type of illegal activity. They just noticed a bulge in the person's pocket, and that by itself does not provide reasonable suspicion of anything illegal going on. Here, um, the officer is immediately told that this vehicle is not properly registered, and so then he could conduct the normal inquiries that take place during a traffic And that's, the, I guess, the question I go to is your position is that a upon first contact with the vehicle and the vehicle's driver the vehicle's driver informed the officer it's not properly registered is that correct that's right and then you're saying at that point in time we diverge or move from solely a seatbelt violation in the confines of the act and move into a registration or other infraction investigation Yes, and that's consistent. And, and that's the, what, the Cade and Campos case that allow that further inquiry as to uh, identification of passengers. Right. As soon as this becomes a normal traffic stop, then there's nothing prohibiting the officer from making the normal inquiries that take place during typical traffic stops. Whereas Richardson never came out of that. It stayed in the confines of seatbelt. Is that yes, a distinction? Yes, the officer didn't have anything that would supply reasonable suspicion in that and case. So it's the state's burden here to, to show that the officer's actions were permissible. Tied to me an illegal registration with officer safety of a passenger wearing a seatbelt. Well, the way I've seen it done in some of this court's cases is the fact that if the officer has to investigate and look into whether the vehicle is properly registered. Um, it's important to know for safety purposes who is in that vehicle, if it's someone that could be a threat to his safety while he's checking on all these different matters. But where do we find that in the transcript? In the transcript, the officer testified this is just officer safety, and then he said 
well, why are you asking the people for, for identifications? Well, to check for active warrants. Isn't that a bridge too far? No, this court has stated that. Become an investigatory stop under Terry. It's an investigatory stop somewhat, but it's permissible during a traffic stop. Um, both this court and our Supreme Court Under stated. the Seatbelt Enforcement Act? Not just because of the seatbelt violation. It'd have to be something more beyond that in order to justify what the officer did here. And I think it's important to note that this court is not bound by the officer's subjective evaluation or his motivations for what he did. Um, so even if he said he didn't think he had reasonable suspicion, that wouldn't bind this court um, in determining whether he did or not. It's the objective circumstances that were known to him at the time. Uh, for example, our Supreme Court has noted that even if an officer doesn't think he has probable cause to arrest someone, um, the court could still find that he does and uphold the arrest on that basis. So, so the Supreme Court made some, some pretty good statements in Washington about officer safety, the Bulge case. And the Supreme Court said specifically, if an officer's concerned for his safety, he can ask the passengers if they have weapons, drugs, or anything else that could harm the officer. Wouldn't that be a, a more legitimate way, if you're an officer, of making sure that you're safe than just asking somebody's name? That would be one way, um, but I don't see the, anything impermissible about finding out who these individuals are to make sure that they aren't someone that has a warrant for the arrest that could be a danger to the officer. Um, Wouldn't the more uh, current concern be, do you have a weapon on you currently? Or do you have drugs or anything that can endanger me? Wouldn't that be the more appropriate first question to ask? He could still ask that, but I don't But think he didn't. He, no, he didn't. But okay. that doesn't negate the fact that he could also check and see who they are. So he asked for their identifications, and he said during trial that he did that to look for active warrants. I believe that's correct. How does that not cross the line that the Supreme Court laid out in Richardson? Because unlike Richardson, he had reasonable suspicion of other illegal activity. Um, so Richardson, all they had was a seatbelt violation. Here to start with, he has the um, suspicion that the vehicle isn't properly registered. Um, so the vehicle could not be driven if it wasn't properly registered. He also notices that the well, plates... Actually, that, that's not completely true, that the vehicle couldn't be driven if not properly registered, because don't you get a period of time after you purchase a vehicle to switch registrations and stuff? In other words, awesome. if I buy a new car, I throw my license plate on it, and I don't have to go straight to the BMV at that point in order to be able to drive it, safe, drive it lawfully. Isn't that correct? That's correct, but um, a person in that situation is supposed to have something in their possession to show they have lawful possession, whether it's a certificate of title, bill of sale, something along those lines, and there's nothing in the record indicating this driver ever offered anything like that. There's nothing in the record indicating he was asked. Isn't that tr also there may, true? There may not be, but there's nothing known to the officer. But it's your burden. I mean, it's the officer's burden to determine that. And the officer didn't even ask whether or not he had anything. I'm looking at the affidavit of probable cause here. Uh, it says he approached the vehicle. Luther said he bought the vehicle two weeks ago. Um, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then, you know, he then asked for the information about the passengers. It doesn't, doesn't indicate that he asked Luther for any information whatsoever other than what Luther volunteered here. I just bought this thing. 
Well, Luther also volunteered that the vehicle wasn't properly registered. And so they well, of course, if he didn't, if he just bought it, he hadn't gone in to register it yet. Right, but the officer isn't required to accept the driver's explanation about how he came into possession. But he didn't ask for anything. I, you're missing my point with the question. Right, I'm saying he doesn't have to ask. He can still go and look in his own vehicle about whether the vehicle is properly registered after he's told that it isn't. Um, and so that's our position. He doesn't have to at the driver's um, side of the window go into a long, detailed discussion. He can go back to his vehicle and check that information. Luther drove home. He wasn't cited with anything, correct? That's correct. But we don't have to judge the officer's actions by what happened at the conclusion of the stop. Um, we look at what he knew at the beginning of the stop. So even if he decided at the end of the stop, okay, maybe he does have proper possession. Um, that doesn't eliminate the fact that at the beginning of the stop, he could investigate to see um, if it was properly registered. Am I correct that the defendant here is Luther's wife? Yes. That's so correct. what if the, when the officer asked for identifications, what if she would have just said I'm his wife and not given a name? He could still ask for additional information if he had the... On what basis? If he had the um, suspicion of uh, another violation. Um, there'd be nothing prohibiting from trying to find out who she was. What if she said, I don't want to give you my name, I'm his wife. That's all you need to know. He could still try to look up that information in his patrol car or talk to another officer to find out what her identity is because that would provide some additional suspicion if she doesn't want to identify herself when you have a vehicle that isn't properly registered. So um, do passengers have to identify themselves in a, a seatbelt enforcement act stop? For just a seatbelt enforcement act, I think it would be a tougher call if that was all they had. Um, I think in that situation, a person could properly... But it's a catch-22. So you're telling me, under the law as it currently exists, a passenger does not have to identify themselves if they're properly strapped in the car. It's just a seatbelt enforcement act stop. But you're saying, my failure to tell the officer my name gives the officer reasonable suspicion to look me up and get my name. So then I have to tell the officer mm -hmm. my name, right? My position on that is that's in the context of already having reasonable suspicion of something else going on beyond. But, but you're life. saying there's no reasonable suspicion. If I won't give you my name, that becomes reasonable suspicion. So that takes away the choice for somebody under the Constitution to just not want to give their name, right? I'm not saying that just not giving your name provides reasonable suspicion. I'm saying that's another factor the officer can consider if he already has reasonable suspicion of illegal activity. And in here, he not only had the um, improper registration, he also noticed that the plates didn't match and the VIN number was for a different color vehicle. Um, so that information could provide reasonable suspicion of a potentially stolen vehicle as well. So all those factors supported the officer conducting additional investigation. And because of that, he could check the passenger's identification to determine who they were. And at that point in time, he found the warrants for their arrest. And so the arrest of the passenger was proper in this so, case. So let's switch to the, the entire possession of the drugs and going to the facility and all of that. Um, the, the issue was, was kind of raised during the questioning of your opposing counsel as to whether or not there was voluntary kind of, kind of possession um, in this instance, that she should have been given an opportunity to either get rid of it or, or, or do something at that point. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I, this audience is way too young, but there's a comedian by the name of Ron White who does a, a shtick 
um, about, you know, wanting to get intoxicated in a private bar and then being thrown out in public. Um, it wasn't voluntary. They threw him out and then they arrested him for, you know, being you know, intoxicated. Isn't this one of those instances where it wasn't voluntary that she did this? No, and I think the difference between the situation and the one you described is that if a person is in a place such as their own home and get intoxicated, um, they're not engaged in any illegal activity. Well, if, he's in, if you're in a bar, a public bar, you're not, and you're drinking in that bar, you're not necessarily engaged in anything illegal there, are you? Perhaps not. It probably depends on whether um, the person how obnoxious you are. Yeah, yeah. Okay. public intoxication. But um, in this case, the defendant made the voluntary choice to possess methamphetamine to begin with. And so she put herself in a difficult situation. Um, what were her choices? The, the trial court judge said that the, an option would have been for her to say, well, I'm not saying I have anything on me. Please search me again before we go into the jail. Hint, hint, so you can find this so I can be charged with something less than trafficking. That seems to be a, a bad choice, right? It's a tough choice. And courts that have looked at this have said, there's no dispute that this is a difficult choice, but the Constitution doesn't prohibit difficult choices in these contexts. Um, and she also had choices beforehand. Um, she could have asked the officer if she could leave her possessions with her husband before she was taken to jail. That would have been one option. Had she had her Miranda warnings or Perto warnings before? I don't believe there's anything in the record about any Miranda warnings that I can recall. Mm -mm. So you, you brought up a, an issue of different courts have looked at this differently. Um, I think in your briefing, you characterized that question of um, the uh, uh, mens rea for entry into the penal facility for the enhancement element of the statute as one of first impression. Is that correct? That's right. That's yeah. So then we've got, we've got a line of cases you cite, and then I think in, in, there's a couple of other cases in states that may support um, the uh, appellant's point of view on, on resolution of that issue. What would you tell our court how we weigh those cases? From what I've seen, the overwhelming majority have come to the conclusion um, that if a person chooses to take the methamphetamine with them, um, that that's sufficient by itself because no one's forcing them to take it into the jail. They may have to go to jail, but they don't have to take the drugs with them into the jail. So looking at that authority from other jurisdictions, we're just kind of supposed to determine how many rule one way versus how many are ruled the other, or is, it, uh, is there something else that we need to use as a tool to evaluate those decisions as to whether that should be Indiana law? Well, I think the reasoning um, is more persuasive because as the majority opinions note, in some of the minority um, cases, they don't take into consideration the fact that a person does have a choice to rid themselves of the drug. And in some of those minority cases, there's no indication in the record that the person was ever advised um, that there could be a further penalty for taking something into the jail. So I think that's one distinguishing factor that the majority uh, opinions have found persuasive. Um, she was getting charged one way or the other. Whether it Most was likely. possession or whether it was trafficking. Most likely it would have been found at the jail. She could have hoped that somehow she'd be able to sneak it in the jail because it was a small amount without them noticing. But, you know, that was a risk that she was taking by keeping it in her possession. Um, and taking it but if she would have capitulated and told the officer, yeah, I do have a little baggie in my pocket, the officer, that wouldn't have been a free pass. 
Right. Now, in that context, then we would have a possible Fifth Amendment issue um, if the person wasn't warned um, and made an incriminating statement. And then we'd have to litigate whether that statement itself could be admitted. Um, but here there is no Fifth Amendment uh, issue because she never made any incriminating statements, um, either at the scene or at the jail. Um, so I argue the Fifth Amendment doesn't come into play in this context. Is there a way around that catch-22 with the way the law is written for somebody that's being arrested and brought into jail? It's, it seems like the, the trafficking statute is clear about those who are in, are in jail and receiving mm -hmm. those crayon letters I was talking about or other instances in, mm -hmm. in trafficking in a jail. But, but this situation doesn't seem to be contemplated in the statute. Am I missing that? I think this is contemplating the statute because they didn't include any language in the statute that would um, exclude someone who's coming into the jail after they've been arrested. But how do you get around the Fifth Amendment? Well, there's no Fifth Amendment issue here because she didn't make any incriminating statements. Um, and so courts have said, um, why do you have a choice about whether to invoke your Fifth Amendment or not? How do we get around the voluntariness? How do we get around the Ron White situation? Mm -hmm. I think the voluntariness goes back to the original choice to actually possess drugs. and then that, that morning when she woke up. Right. And then in her pocket. And then the next choice was when she's warned about um, additional penalties, she still continues to make the choice to keep the methamphetamine. But she still, I mean, that's just, uh, that's self-incrimination, though. I mean, if she goes ahead and turns it over, that's self-incriminating yourself. And I guess, is that where you get back to the choice? Right, and then we get to the point, too, whether that statement would be admissible. Um, and so we'd have to litigate whether that was a voluntary statement and whether um, she was given proper advisement. So yeah, and then there's a whole question of if she wanted to give it to her husband, what would have happened at that point? Here, honey, here's this bag of dope I've got in my hand. Hold this for me since you're not going to jail when I am. So right. Luckily, we don't have to address that one. <laughs> right, and then we also have the issue of if the officer allowed her to give her possessions over to her husband, um, is he going to search through those items or is he going to allow her to do that? And then if he says no, I think in that context, at least she would have some evidence she could use to show that it wasn't her voluntary choice because she tried and the officer didn't allow her to. So that'd be something she could argue to the yeah. jury. I, I did have one question going back to um, the, the stop. Is the giving of false information to an officer as far as giving a false name or not providing that, does that in and of itself provide enough to that officer to go ahead and continue with a further investigation into it? It could. If he knows that the person's giving them false information, I think that would justify him trying to determine what the reason for that is. Um, especially when you have a potentially stolen vehicle, um, that could provide additional suspicion that something's going along here with how they came into possession of this vehicle. Well, so let me let me let me kind of ask you this. It's kind of a hypothetical. So say so this is so that this is a seatbelt thing. Say we find that this is a seatbelt thing, um, but he did have the right to ask the passengers their names. She gives a false name. Does that giving the false name in and of itself in a seatbelt case allow him to open up the investigation further? I think it could. Um, okay. So that would be an option, but I think ultimately in this case, this court doesn't have to reach that question just because of the other information of the officer. Because of the registration. Right. And I think it's really important in this case to focus on the fact that this court is not bound by the officer's subjective evaluation because the defendant focuses a lot on what the officer thought 
about his thought process was and how he was conducting these steps. But this court isn't um, constrained to follow his reasoning um, about whether he had reasonable suspicion or not. This court can look at it objectively and determine that if an officer is told the vehicle isn't properly registered, that's a basis for further investigation to determine whether it is and what the circumstances are that this person came into possession of the vehicle. And so when you look at this objectively, um, there was a valid basis for the way the officer proceeded in this case. Because he had these grounds for suspicion, he could conduct this stop as he would any other type uh, of traffic stop. And so therefore, there's nothing improper about him checking the passenger's identification. So the state would ask this court to find that the um, officer did not violate the seatbelt act, the methamphetamine was properly discovered, and that the evidence was sufficient to sustain the defendant's conviction. Do you have any additional questions? Nothing. No. All right. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Lehman, you have, I believe, a total of four minutes on your rebuttal. All right, Judge. Thank you. And I, I said, well, the Ron White analogy resonated with the court. The question mark was answered, so thank you. Uh, <laughs> Your uh, Honor, this state's entire case is based upon a hypothetical set of facts which we don't know what the timing of what relevant to the registration uh, issue at all. So their argument now is for the first time on appeal, let us present to you a hypothetical way that these facts may have been developed from what Luther said. When did he say it? When did he say it relevant to the questions being asked to the women passengers? And the state's saying that we can come up with a hypothetical set of facts that wasn't developed at trial and then use that hypothetical set of facts to then get to the result that we want. First, the facts weren't developed. The state has the burden of proof of proving a warrant exception. The state missed that opportunity and is now trying, contrary to what, to present a new set of facts that wasn't developed below to substantiate or to, uh, to justify the officer's conduct. Second. What, what about their, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I know you have a, a set thing you want to say. What about their, their argument that we don't really have to pay any attention to what the officer says as to why they do things? Yes, they're saying that, you, that whether the officer subjectively believed that there was a crime or not is irrelevant. Uh, if, but that's not the issue that's presented in this case. The issue is, is whether the facts of take all the, the totality of circumstances create reasonable suspicion. And as this as judge, as you ask, uh, when I was giving my principal argument here. Well, doesn't timing matter? Well, yeah, the timing clearly matters. If the guy lied to you and you say, well, the VIN number doesn't match, like, when he's learning things matters. And this, th that's the totality of the circumstances. But we don't know the totality of the circumstances because the state didn't give us that at trial. The officer didn't give us that at trial. They have the burden of proof of establishing an exception to the warrant requirement. And here, the only thing that they presented was officer safety. Then, when that, when that uh, dog doesn't hunt at the Court of Appeals, they present a whole other hypothetical situation that no party had an opportunity to develop and say, we could have met our burden had you understood the timing to be as such and the facts to be as such. I'm not sure it even gets them the result that they want because this case, as, uh, um, as this court was asking, presents some really challenging questions. 
all the cases that allow you to talk about question office or passengers always revolve around an individualized, particularized concern for safety when you're executing a traffic infraction. Let's, in Maryland, from the, from the United States Supreme Court, let's get the, the guy out of the car so that I can start talking to these people out of the way of the highway or the situations of bulges in pockets. We have not seen, or I'm not aware of the case where we say, hey, I have a concern that your car is not registered. Let me start asking for the identification and the birth dates and the names of your female passengers. That's a tough case. But why? But we don't need to get there because the state didn't present us that case until the first time on appeal. So our position would be they have the burden of proof. Don't let any ambiguities in the record be used by the state now to justify conduct, especially when their officer explicitly pursued this as a different route and said, when asked by the defense counsel, do you have reasonable suspicion of any criminal activity? He said, other than the seatbelt thing, no. That's the end of it. So that's, uh, he, the officer could have very well said, I don't have objective circumstances because Luther presented me a portfolio of documentation to substantiate why this vehicle was not, he had not completed the registration. But we don't know that because it was not relevant for any lawyer to pursue until it became here to the Court of Appeals. So the, the, this is a paradigm example of a web situation, creating a whole new situation in order to affirm the judgment below when you missed the opportunity for that time. Your Honor, with those thoughts in mind, I would respectfully ask this court to reverse Ms. Baker's conviction and remand to the trial court for proceedings consistent with its decision. Thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. All right, we really appreciate um, being here. This ends the formal part of this oral argument. If we were in the State House in Indianapolis at this point, we would go back into the conference room and talk about this case. But since we're here at this venue, we have the opportunity to come out from behind the bench and answer some questions. And I know that we don't have a lot of time, but we've probably got 10 or 15 minutes, I think, where, uh, where we can answer questions. The only thing that we can't do is answer questions about this case. So sorry about that. Can't do that. Uh, but we can answer all sorts of other questions, and you can also ask uh, the attorney's questions. So with that, um, we will go ahead and stand up, come out from behind the bench, and answer some questions. Are you going to take these mics? Yeah.